Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to James chapter 2. As we continue in our series in the epistle of James. Would you join me in prayer as we ask for God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word? Great God of heaven, we bow before you, knowing that in Jesus Christ you have loved us with an everlasting love, and that you have brought us near, we who are far off, and willingly so, asking that you would be near to us now, that you would fill this assembly and each one in it with your word and spirit, that the word of God may speed ahead and be glorified, that sinners would be converted, and those whom you have elected unto everlasting life would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us. Please accompany the preaching of your holy word with power, the power of the Spirit who raised us from the dead in Jesus Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. And now would you stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich, ones who, the, rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we, we begin chapter 2 in our series in James, you can already see that James expands upon things he's already dealt with. We saw last time at the end of chapter 1, there was a progression to James's argument. Being a mature believer means being a hearer of God's Word. Being a hearer means being a doer. And being a doer means being a doer in specific ways. That is how chapter 1 ends, what it means specifically to be a doer of God's Word. That's what we saw in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The tongue, in verse 26 of chapter 1, true religion is a matter of bridling your tongue. The helpless, in verse 27, true religion involves visiting orphans and widows, those who are, ne who are needy and afflicted in their affliction. And in verse 27 again, the world. True religion is a matter of avoiding the corruption of this fallen world order. So these same themes crop up again throughout the rest of James, as some of them do here in our passage this evening. So as we begin chapter 2, you can see that James continues to be specific in his pastoral counsel to the people of God, dealing here specifically with partiality and discrimination within the covenant people. Partiality, that might not be an everyday word for many of us. What is partiality? Another word for partiality is one I've included in the sermon title in your order of worship, favoritism, playing favorites, preference of this person over that person, 
these people over those people. Now, at this point, many in our culture would be getting excited because at first glance, perhaps James is endorsing the kind of egalitarian society that our culture is calling for, a society where no one has authority over anyone else, where no one has, is distinct from anyone else, the poor and oppressed can rise up against their oppressors and claim and achieve their freedom. That's the kind of ideal we hear much about today, the spirit of Karl Marx being alive and well. It's worth mentioning, however, that God's Word makes plenty of distinctions within the people of God elsewhere. There are believers and there are unbelievers within the covenant of grace. That's, that's a main point of Jesus' parables all throughout the Gospels, a distinction of believers and unbelievers. The Apostle Paul makes clear that the believer is not to associate with the sexually immoral, not outside of the world, but within the, not outside in the world, but in the church. Think of the example he deals with in 1 Corinthians 5 about the man in sexual relations with his stepmother. Another distinction, there are also qualifications for the office of elder and the office of deacon. Think of how Paul lists those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And what should strike you, as at some other time you read through those qualifications, what should strike you as you read through those, those characteristics of office bearers in Christ's church, being above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, etc. What should strike you about these qualifications is not just that they are only for men, not just that the office of elder and deacon applies only to the men of the congregation. What should strike you as you read through those qualifications is that they apply only to godly men. Being an officer in Christ's church can fairly be called a distinguishing, discriminating calling. Now, that is not to say that if you are a godly man, you will, you will become an officer. But to become an officer, you must be a godly man, not just a man. So there are elsewhere in Scripture distinctions made within the people of God, distinctions, distinctions that God himself makes. And you see here in verse 4, James 2, making distinctions among yourselves, that is not something that James seems to commend. So what is going on here? What is James speaking against? What is the partiality or favoritism that ought not to be seen within the body of Christ? Well, the background of this word partiality is useful here. It's Old Testament background. The word translated partiality here can also be rendered something like receiving the face. Receiving the face. How does that image of receiving the face help us to understand what partiality is? Well, way back in the days of the Old Testament, if I were to approach you and greet you, I would turn my face to the ground. And if you raised my face toward you, if you received the face, that is a sign of recognition and esteem. So partiality or favoritism means receiving some and rejecting others. Now that definition is true as far as it goes. But James goes farther here in this scenario, in, in this passage. You can see the kind of situation James talks about, especially there in verses 2 to 4, receiving the rich and rejecting the poor. So we could define partiality or favoritism this way, receiving some and rejecting others based on external appearance. That is the heart of favoritism or partiality. That's what James is speaking against making judgments about a person based solely on external, temporary, fleeting, worldly things about them. You've heard those sayings, 
he wouldn't give me the time of day, or giving someone the cold shoulder. Those are examples of partiality, some ways we speak about favoritism. So James is writing to address the tendency within God's people of making distinctions based on worldly standards, external appearances, like favoring the rich and rejecting the poor, as he mentions here. And as we might expect, in addressing the problem, James also gives the solution. But you'll notice in our reading, and as we go through the passage more carefully, notice how James does not solve the problem of partiality. He does not say anything like, hey guys, we're all people, all right? You came in the world with nothing, you leave with nothing. Don't worry about the external stuff. Don't mistreat the poor person. Look at his heart. See that he's an okay, neat guy. If partiality is receiving or rejecting based on external appearance, James does not say that the solution is to look on the inside, to the personality, the heart, the hopes or dreams of the person. So what is the solution to partiality for James? We see there in verse 1, his reference to holding the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Looking to who Christ is kills the problem of partiality. And also in verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That's a packed solution to the problem of partiality. Election, God's kingdom, God's promises, those are some other things that do away with the problem of partiality. When you see the glory of the resurrected, ascended, reigning Christ, the head and king of the church, when you see that we are all sinners before him, rich and poor, young and old, black, white, whatever, whatever other external distinction, when you see that the only thing of eternal value is you're placing your faith in him and him alone for your salvation, when you see that God himself does not accept or reject you based on your external appearance, when you see that God himself does not accept or reject you based on your, your internal heart either, when you see what grace means, you will begin to appreciate that being a sinner saved by the glorious grace of the glorious Savior makes partiality impossible within the church that Christ purchased with his precious blood. And so the main point of our passage this evening is a little more packed than usual, but I wanted to try to fit the thought of the passage into one sentence. James' main point is this, there is no place for favoritism before the Lord of glory in his kingdom. No place for favoritism before the Lord of glory in his kingdom. Four things as we unpack this main point. First, a commitment, the problem, the kingdom, and the world. So first of all, we see the commitment. Look again there at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, in a real sense, James gives at least one of the solutions to partiality as soon as he gives the problem. James doesn't refer to the Savior here merely as the Lord, merely as Jesus, merely as Christ. How does he refer to Christ there at the end of verse 1? The Lord of glory. That word glory is very important here. James is not referring to, to Jesus as the second person of the ontological trinity, very God of very God. James is not referring to Christ in his humiliation 
between his birth and his death. James is referring to the Lord of glory, the exalted, resurrected, reigning Savior. Think of how our shorter catechism, how our Reformed tradition has spoken of the two estates of Christ, two, two estates in the life of Jesus Christ. Another way to think of it, two chapters in his life, two distinct times when he had two different statuses, two, two different standings before with respect to God. So before, from, from his birth to his death is his estate of humiliation. As the catechism puts it, being born in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Think of other aspects of Christ's humiliation. Fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, only to be followed by being tempted by Satan himself three times in the wilderness, ultimately going to the cursed death of the cross to pay for the sins of his elect people. That is his, those are some elements of his estate of humiliation, the Son of God in weakness, the Son of God in humiliation. And then came his estate of exaltation. As the catechism puts it, rising again from the dead on the third day, ascending up into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, coming to judge the world at the last day. And so it is this Christ, this exalted Christ that James speaks of here in verse 1, this same Christ that we are to behold to put to death the problem of partiality in Christ's body. And so if you are a believer, you are united not to a humiliated Savior, not to a dead Savior, but to a risen, exalted, and reigning, glorified Savior. You are united to the Lord of glory, as James puts it here. Wasn't Jesus always the Lord, always the Lord of glory? Well, yes, of course. But it was not until his resurrection from the dead, it was not until his, his exaltation that he became the Lord of resurrection power and glory. Think about, think about how Paul puts it in Romans 1, Romans 1 verse 4, how he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, how? In power, according to the Spirit of holiness, when? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, of course, was always the Son of God from eternity past, the Son of God in his, humili in his humiliation, but not until his resurrection from the dead was he the Son of God in power. What kind of power? The power of an indestructible resurrection life. The power of being the Lord of glory. Absolutely not a change in his divine being, but in his human nature, an advancement in his role as our Savior from humiliation to exaltation when God vindicated him and raised him from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God in power and the Lord of glory. That is who James sets before us here, this exalted Savior, the Lord of glory. Why is James doing this? Isn't James supposed to be practical and helpful for daily life in the, in the church and as a believer? Why is James doing this? Because when you see who you are before the exalted Lord of glory, you see that there are no distinctions among men that matter. Who are you before Christ? Who are you before the Lord of glory? You are a miserable sinner in need of his redeeming work. 
Who is this honored rich man before the Lord of glory? A miserable sinner in need of Christ's redeeming work. Same as the poor man, same as every race and every other external distinction. These distinctions do not matter ultimately before the Lord of glory because we are all naked and ashamed and exposed and in need of his saving work. Do rich people need Jesus less? No, of course not. Do poor people need Jesus more? No. But do all of us, rich or poor, desperately need the Savior? Absolutely, yes. There are no distinctions, no, no lasting, no important distinctions before the face of this Lord of glory. All that matters is whether you are in Adam or in Christ. That is all that matters. Think of how Paul talks about the exaltation of Christ, our response to his exaltation in those famous words in Philippians 2. Now that God has, has finished, now that, that Christ has finished his work of, of saving his people, therefore what? God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name of the Lord of glory, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what will happen on that glorious day when you see Jesus Christ face to face? Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is who God has made him to be, the exalted Lord of glory. But the rich, they won't bow to him, right? They will, they will get backstage passes to see, to see that show, right? They are, they are closer to him because they're rich. No, of course not. Every knee will bow, poor and rich, black and white, young and old. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess him to be the exalted Lord. It is on that day that it will become perfectly clear that the external appearances that we can put so much stock in, the, the partiality we have of preferring the rich, ignoring the poor, or however that manifests in your life, that will all fall to the ground. And so James's point here is, why do you prefer these people and exclude those people if all of us need the Savior equally? Live in light, James is saying. Live in light of who Christ is, the exalted Lord of glory, before whom all of us, rich and poor, are naked and exposed and needy. Live in light of that final day to come when all of us will bow to him and all of our external appearances, our masks, will be removed and fall away. And all that will matter is whether you trusted in him or whether you rejected him. That is why partiality has no place within the people of God. We assume that we are less sinful, that these people are more sinful, more needy, and then we make those distinctions, those external distinctions within the body of Christ. James would have none of it. Look to who the Lord of glory is, and partiality will disappear. Secondly, the problem. We've already seen this, but more, more details. Secondly, on the problem. James sketches that problem from verses 2 to 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, 
while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So again, the problem here being favoritism or partiality within the congregation. As James puts it there in verse 3, if you what? If you pay attention to the rich man while you ignore the poor or give the poor short shrift. Making distinctions, what is the problem? Making distinctions based on temporary things rather than eternal things. Distinctions based on the fleeting rather than the permanent the earthly rather than the heavenly. And we have to wonder, since we're speaking of the Lord of glory here, we have to wonder in this congregation, in any congregation that this is a problem for, and it is a problem for all of our congregations, how would Jesus Christ himself be received? He may have been passed over in such a context. As we know of Jesus from Isaiah 53, what does Isaiah say of him there? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus would not walk into the congregation back then or today with the gold ring, with the awesome car, with the fine clothing. He had nothing externally distinguishing or awesome about him. Jesus himself confirmed as much in Matthew 8. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How does, the, Lord, how does the, the eternal Son of God, when He becomes man and comes to the place He created, how does He have nowhere to lay His head? How is He poor in the world? That is part of His humiliation. Not even the Savior of sinners got the special kind of treatment that you give the rich man, James is saying here. Think of how, how Paul shows us another way, the, the two estates of Christ, and actually uh, more than that, from Christ in eternity past to eternity future. Think of how Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So the Lord Jesus came from the riches of heaven to the poverty of earth. Why? To bring sinners out of the poverty of earth to the riches of heaven. Not to worldly, temporary riches that pass away, that are lost at death, the riches of communion with the triune God now and forever in union with Him. But the spirit of partiality says, I'm more interested in this guy and that car he pulled up in. Maybe that guy, he can pay for our budget if we're a little behind at year end. Those are the kinds of sinful distinctions James is talking about in this situation. And as we've seen, James already gave the solution, gave a solution anyway, to this problem back in verse 1, seeing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, that we are all equal before Him, that everything we have is from Him anyway, and that we are all naked and exposed before Him in need of the clothing of His righteousness. There are no ranks of people before Him ranks that make anyone better or worse, or more deserving or less deserving than anyone else. That is the solution. And if James had only that to say, as far as the solution goes, that would be sufficient. But he has more. He has more solutions to give to the problem of partiality. That leads to our next point. Thirdly, the nature of God's kingdom. 
the nature of God's kingdom. Look there at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? We could spend all night just on this verse. It's so packed. Chosen. God chosen. God has chosen them. God's gracious election before the foundation of the world. Not for anything in us, not because you were rich, not because you were poor, only for His mere good pleasure. Reference to heirs of the kingdom. You know from other places in Scripture that the kingdom comes in two phases. Jesus brought it in His first coming. It is now here invisibly by faith. James is referring to the future when it comes visibly, when it's here by sight. To be, in, to be in God's kingdom, to be under His rule and reign, the reality of God giving Himself in a bond of fellowship to His people, where a holy God dwells with a holy people in a holy place through an obedient covenant head, the Lord Jesus, the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him, as James says. Now, that's an interesting way of putting it. God has promised His kingdom to whom? God has promised His kingdom to the poor? God has promised His kingdom to the poor because they're poor? No. He has promised His kingdom, how does James put it there? To those who love Him. That is another reason partiality does not belong in the kingdom of God. It runs counter to the nature of God's kingdom. The only thing that matters in the kingdom of God, where God is covenant Lord and we are His covenant people, is not external appearance. It is the fact that you are totally hopeless and helpless and a desperately needy sinner in need of the, the, of the Savior, the head and king of the church. You're not more or, or less deserving of God's grace if you're rich or poor. You're not deserving of God's grace at all because that's what makes grace grace. It is undeserved. More than that, it is demerited. Not only do you receive favor that you do not deserve, you have the, the wrath that was due to you for your sin removed in the death of Jesus Christ. Being in God's kingdom also has, has reference to a transfer of realms. You were in the domain of darkness, in your sin, in union with Adam, and by God's grace, He transferred you out of that domain into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Stuck in this fallen world system, enslaved to your sin, following Satan, locked in a room with no doors or windows, with the lights off, your eyes cemented shut. And God took you out of that domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of light and life in His beloved Son. A transfer of realms. This is the kind of language we should think of when we read of being in God's kingdom. In other words, when you trust in Jesus, when you come to know Him as King and you are in His kingdom, you are no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You are in the light, the light of God's glory. You're no longer stuck in this fallen world system. You are part of the kingdom of Jesus. Satan no longer has mastery over you. The Lord Jesus is now your Savior and Lord. That is another solution to the problem of partiality, the nature of God's kingdom, that we all are equally needy of God's grace. Not some more than others or less than others. All of us need His grace. And the nature of God's kingdom is that we are all sinners in, in, 
uh, deserving of God's eternal wrath, and we got his grace instead by faith. It's another solution to the problem of partiality. But there's more. There's one more solution, at least to our final point. Fourthly, the nature of the world. Look there at verses 6 and 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We saw last time, if you look at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, go to the end of the verse, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So as we get here to to chapter 2, the end of our passage this evening, James is emphasizing that you are living like the world, that you are wanting the approval of the world, you who are in God's kingdom. What are you doing wanting the, 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 the love and approval of those who are in the world, those who are in, under God's wrath, when you have come to know God's grace and favor? That is James's point here. He's talking about the, the worldliness that is still in, in, the, in the kingdom of God because of our remaining corruption. So again, when you read world there in verse verse 27 of chapter 1, as that theme is, is echoed here in, in chapter 2, when you read world there, think world order or world system. Not God's creation that he made, not, not the globe of earth, the fallen world system, the fallen world order. It says, Herman Ritterboss helpfully comments that, that world, in, in this negative sense, is the world turned away from God rebellious and hostile toward him, depraved mankind that is headed for judgment. That is how world in this negative sense here is being used, this ungodly lifestyle and world system. It's the same kind of worldliness that James is referring to here in chapter 2. He's reminding the people of God, you've been redeemed from this. The world hates God. Why would you want the world to like you? Why do you prefer the wicked who come in the congregation? They hate your king. Why would you care what they think about you? And we'll see more of this situation, Lord willing, next week. But for now, just, just appreciate how James is pressing home to you, the believer, the identity that you have in the Lord Jesus, how you belong to a different order of things, not to the world, not to the fallen world system, but to the kingdom of God. You have a different Lord and Master. Don't give preferential treatment to those who hate your king. Don't despise those whom your king has loved and for whom he has shed his blood. Make sure your priorities are the priorities of your king. Some closing words of application. Think of the final verse of our, of our closing hymn. Or every foe victorious, he on his throne shall rest, from age to age more glorious, all blessing and all blessed. The tide of time shall never his covenant remove, his name shall stand forever. That name to us is love. And so if Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, if he has loved you with his everlasting love, you can love as you have been loved. You were unlovely in your sin and his redeeming love came to you. He not only loved the unlovely, he loved it in such a way to make it lovely. 
Have you been made lovely in Jesus Christ? Do you know his redeeming love? Then you can love those who are poor in the world, who are rich in faith. You can love the rich in faith, even if they are externally poor and have nothing to offer you or your congregation. Don't, honor, don't give honor in the church to those who hate the head and king of the church. Cultivate his priorities within your heart. Weed out the, the worldly priorities that remain. In his commentary on James, Sinclair Ferguson helpfully unpacks how understanding grace removes our temptation to partiality. When I was helpless, Christ died for me. When I was poor, he enriched me. When I was tainted by sin, he threw his arms around me. When I was unloved, he kissed me in his grace. When I was naked, he clothed me with his garments. When I was an orphan, he brought me to his own father. When I had no friends, he gave me his whole family. When earth left me starving, he fed me bread from heaven. When nothing would satisfy my thirst, he gave me living water. When I was in darkness, he gave me the light of life. When I was lost, he found me. When I was a stranger, he took me in. When I was without hope, he gave me the hope of glory. When I had nothing to give him, he gave me everything he had. And when I die, he will let me live with him forever. And we could add, and when he returns... I will be raised from the dead to be with him in the place he has prepared for me. Remember how we talked earlier about partiality, how it is a receiving the face? The Bible talks the same way of receiving the face. The Bible talks that way about sinners receiving God's mercy. Think of the benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his what? Face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so if God has lifted up his face to you, if he has received your face in the Lord Jesus in grace and not in wrath as you deserve, you can receive the face of every other sinner showing no partiality knowing that you both need Jesus equally. You can trust in him. You can grow in his grace and be humbled before him, knowing that if God can save me, he can save anyone, because I, a miserable sinner, need him desperately for my salvation. May God grant in this place these kingdom priorities that we all would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us.